BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. My choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 Plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Today, we're really excited to welcome Swan Sit onto the show. Swan's bio is hard to summarize quickly, but I will try. She is formerly the head of digital at such iconic American brands like Nike, Revlon, and Estee Lauder. She is on the board of three public companies, and she might be Clubhouse's biggest star. That said, I was so sad to miss this conversation with Swan. I can't believe it. I had just gotten back on a red eye and, and wasn't able to join. Post-pandemic problems, Dame. It's something that we <laughs> never would have imagined just a few months ago. But um, you will love her, and I will definitely make sure the three of us get together because I just fell in love with her. She's so candid and so honest. I definitely left no stone unturned in this interview. Probably made her blush a couple times, but it was worth it. It was a great conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. All right, let's listen. Listen. 
I want to start with sort of an obvious place, which is Clubhouse. So I was one of the early people on Clubhouse. I got on in July 4th of last year, was super into it for a few weeks. And then I thought like, what is this? I couldn't really get my head around it. And I left Left for eight months, right? Big mistake. No. Came back and there were like, I know, right? And there were like millions of people. So how did how did you avoid that mistake? Tell me. I was grasping for connection. 2020 was a year that we were all so separated from our friends, our community, even coworkers. And I was in Boston with my family in my childhood home, hanging out with my folks. Now, they're amazing people, but for an extrovert, hanging with your two parents for a year, really quiet. So when I started on Clubhouse at the end of May, it had nothing to do with room titles or programming or resetting rooms and mods. It was a bunch of people hanging out. And honestly, I think that was my benefit because when we joined in the spring, there was maybe 30 people on a night. You went on to reconnect with old friends and to meet new ones. And because I think that was the core of everything I did, even as it scaled in July or in the fall, I didn't think of it as a platform that we were trying to build a presence on. It was still meeting great people and having an online community. So I think that's why actually in a way being early obviously was great because you start building a following, but my mentality was to approach it as a social connection piece, not as a broadcast platform. So in a way it accidentally served me in the best possible way and I just continued with it. It was a community I loved that I wanted to serve and continue to be a part of. So I stayed. And how has that changed the trajectory of your career? It's life-changing. I was always behind the scenes at brands like companies like Nike, Estee Lauder, Revlon. And now I think I can call myself a creator. It's still really uncomfortable to say that, but I love amplifying people's stories and giving people access to opportunity and information. So in a weird way, just by hanging out on Clubhouse and wanting to help people at scale, now I've signed with Vayner Talent. We just announced it yesterday. So I'm officially a creator and we're going to develop programming that will help people at scale. A year and a half ago, I was still in the corporate ladder working with big companies, which there was a time and place for. But now I think those those networks, those skill sets will create a landscape and a platform for me to do completely different things. The irony is that I was Gary Vaynerchuk's first ever client that he managed, his first ever talent that he ever managed. And that was in a different stage of his career. And there was no Vayner talent. It was just a very, very long time ago. And we had a talk show that we did together called Obsessed TV. And Gary would come in the beginning and he was kind of like my, Al Roker called him my Gelman. And he would be there for the whole show. And then at the very end, he would have a glass of wine with me and the guest. So that was a very long time ago. We did 75 episodes of the show. And obviously, Gary's career has changed a lot since then. So tell us about the evolution of how that happened for you. Well, thank you for paving the way for the rest of us, because look at your (laughs) career now. You've got this incredible podcast. So hopefully, I'll follow in your footsteps. Gary and I met years ago, I believe at a South by Southwest event. And you know he's a very busy man. So for us to have time to sit and have lunch was a pretty remarkable moment in the intersection of our lives. We talked about our families, our childhoods, our values, and something just connected. And since then, he's someone I like to call a friend tour, right? Somebody I've had the privilege of calling a friend, but been incredible at shepherding some of the pivotal moments in my career. From when we were at Elizabeth Arden, we used digital to save the company and we got acquired by Revlon. I was like, do I still want to keep doing this? He was there for me. When I left the beauty industry after eight years across Lauder, Arden, and Revlon and decided to go to Nike, he was there for me. And what was his advice during that time? Do what makes you happy. I know that's really trite, but when you compare it against a corporate ladder, sometimes you don't have the luxury of having both. 
And what I needed was the confidence at that point to realize I'd built a credibility and a track record of doing two decades in corporate. And maybe if I were five years in, it wouldn't have been the right time to leave. But he could see me straining at the edges as an intrapreneur. I don't love that word, but that is what it is. When you do digital transformation at legacy companies, you're trying to convince them how to sell differently on e-com or broadcast messages on social or to let influencers and the public represent your brand. That's really uncomfortable for legacy companies. So he could see me straining at the edges, wanting to do more, wanting to be bigger. And I think at some point, the confines of corporate weren't going to allow me to move as fast as I wanted or be as creative as I wanted. So his advice at the point was to give me a bit of confidence to say, this is your time, whether it was to move from beauty to sports or from being corporate into my own life. I'd built enough of a platform and a network and a confidence that I could shoot off into it. So I think it was the right time to hear that message, the credibility he has, the experience he has. It was the confidence I needed to get past that imposter syndrome and to really lean into this. So it's beautiful that through all of his advice over the years, it's come full circle and I get to work with Vayner Talent now. In five years, where do you hope to see your career? You know, we all get asked, what do you want to be when you grow up when you're a child? I still have no idea. I don't even know what two years from now looks like, but I enjoy every minute of what I'm doing right now. And I think the core of it is democratizing access, information, and opportunity. I came to the U.S. when I was six years old. My parents didn't even finish middle school in Hong Kong. So we had some pretty humble beginnings. And through some hard work and a lot of luck, I ended up with some incredible opportunities. But not everyone follows that same path. So my North Star in everything I do is to democratize that access. Clubhouse, in a way, has allowed me to do that, but who knows what it is. Maybe it's a book or a podcast or a show or more events-based things. I actually don't know yet. But part of that journey is being open to the discovery because I've been so programmed in corporate for so many years. Now we have a blank slate. So if NFTs come up or stocks come up, I can say yes out of curiosity. Go learn and play and see what we can build. But as long as I'm democratizing other people's access to it along with my journey... I'm happy with that. Who knows what that looks like? So check in with me in a year and we'll see. So let's go back to your childhood. I, I know that you came here when you were six years old. That's something that you and Gary obviously have in common is those roots. Tell me about what it was like for you when you first arrived in the U.S. and how you assimilated. It was such a double-edged sword, like I think with most immigrant kids coming over. In some ways, it was incredible. It's a whole new land. I'd never been on an airplane. Then I get dropped into this new country, and the living situation was part of the craziness. So my dad had 11 siblings, and his younger sister came and married somebody who was born in China but grew up in the U.S. And they had six kids and then brought my grandparents over. So you have my aunt and uncle, my two grandparents, and then six kids, Eugene, and then Polly and Marianne, Roseanne, Yo, and Suzanne. You've got six kids. So now you've got, you've got, what, 10 people in a house packed in, half of a two-family house. My family of four, my cousin's family of three, so seven of us, get on a plane, fly to Boston, and the seven of us move in with the 10 that were already there. So it was wow. crazy. For me, it was like one long <laughs> perpetual sleepover with my cousins who are your first friends. But it really gave me a soft landing into a country that is so different culturally with language and customs and, and how we live. But it was such a beautiful on-ramp to American culture that then I still really enjoyed the duality of being Asian American. But that said, it was kind of tough, right? Without language, with my parents being entry-level working class here without even starting high school, 
it was a tougher childhood. What did they do? So my dad worked at a restaurant. He was a truck driver in Hong Kong. Then he came to the U.S., worked at a restaurant, and worked his way up. Within a year, he went from being entry level in that kitchen to running the entire kitchen of that four-star restaurant in Boston. And it's an incredible story. I still look back to how do you go from washing dishes and working the grill to running an entire kitchen of a gourmet restaurant and then opening a second location for the owner. And it's hard work, kindness, and ingenuity, right? So my dad would tell me stories about that kitchen. They made everything from scratch, right? And that's part of the work ethic of an immigrant mentality. You don't buy tartar sauce. You don't buy clam chowder. You make it all from scratch. But for every $100 in revenue, my dad saved $7 in profit for that owner. With a 150-seat restaurant, think about the impact of how much more money in the pocket of the owner there is every single night. So my dad went from running the grill to running the restaurant. Then my mom came, worked at a jewelry factory, stringing beads onto strings and became a jewelry designer. Then my parents That's decided to run dry cleaners and laundromats. So I worked at a dry cleaners every weekend in my childhood. I was front of house customer service. So you can see how I always look at things from the customer's standpoint, right? Because I worked front of house when I was 15 years old. All of that rolls in together to think about how the components of business work. Regardless if you're at a Fortune 500 company or you're running a neighborhood dry cleaner, it's still the same elements of service, of understanding consumers, and giving them a product or service at a fair price that everyone wins for. It's the same construct. So that was super pivotal for my childhood, but layer that on with a kid with a weird bull haircut with purple glasses, which would be cool nowadays if you were living in Brooklyn, but <laughs> back then, I would run around with a terrible bull haircut big purple glasses. I would talk about space all the time because I was really into science. I didn't have a lot of friends, but again, I wouldn't trade that either because that's that's where the kindness and empathy come in, right? I know what it's like to be an outsider. And maybe I always will be, but the more inclusive I can make that, the richer our communities are. So there's 17 of you living in this house. How yes. big was the house? It's half of a two-family house. So there was one room, I think there was like five of us bunked up. But when you're a kid, I was six years old, that was a sleepover at Paradise. I mean, how right? fun. Yeah. It was super <laughs> By the fun. way, even for your parents, it probably was a lot easier than if they'd been alone with you because you had instant entertainment. <laughs> exactly. So I learned English very quickly running around with my cousins. You had built-in friends and family. And to this day, my cousins are extended family. It's a really tight-knit unit because to onboard to a new culture and a new country together. I mean, there's nothing more bonding than that. And even though we only stayed in that house for six months as a group of 17, the seven of us that came over, my family of four and my cousin's family of three, we all lived in another house for another few years together. Because that's what you do. You stretch to make the ends meet. We clipped coupons to buy groceries and we shared and, and collaborated. And, you know, that makes you realize you can do anything if you're doing it with good people. What have your peers grown up to do? So your siblings and your cousins. We're all so different. My little brother is in IT. He has the same friends as he's had since childhood who are all my little brothers, but he really likes the technical component of what he does. I have a cousin who's a baker, one who's an artist, another cousin who's in business like me. So we run the entire gamut. And that also keeps me really grounded. I mean, the Asian tiger parent dream is for all of us to go to Harvard and to be doctors and lawyers, right? Not all of us did that. And so being able to kind of break that norm, I'm still grateful for having gotten to where I am, but to recognize that each of my cousins in their all creative and different ways 
we're equally bringing fun things to the table. I think you see it at Thanksgiving when I come around and what am I doing? I'm not giving PowerPoint presentations, but my chef cousin is creating the best turkey and the best cakes for us. So, you know, we all bring different skills to the table and dispelling that myth of the Asian tiger parent where the only way to succeed is the doctor or lawyer path. None of us are doctors and lawyers. Although you did you did end up at Harvard. So you were the you were the tiger parent's dream. How did you end up at Harvard? Through a lot of luck. I mean, it was my grandfather's dying wish I go to Harvard. And if you're an immigrant family, you know Harvard. And we used to joke that an A minus is an Asian F because it was A's or nothing. And there was, I do remember one semester I brought home a B plus. My parents didn't talk to me for a month. And so it was a little bit of tough love. But gosh, I mean, what a road it set me up for. But the reason I got into Harvard, because honestly, there were so many applicants with better grades and SAT scores than me, but I really enjoyed democratizing education. I didn't call it that back then, but I loved sharing and learning with people. And I was lucky enough to do some enrichment programs at MIT when I was in high school. I went to school 12 months out of the year, so there was never a summer vacation. And oftentimes my parents would send me when I was younger. So for example, if I was going from third to fourth grade, I would go to summer school with the fourth grade kids that were held back. Again, didn't make me so popular, but my parents thought they were getting me a year ahead or at least keeping me occupied for the summer. But as I got to high school, MIT ran so many enrichment programs that I could take versions of college classes and be around other kids that thought it was cool to be smart. So my junior year summer, I ran a program as half facilitator, half student with MIT called MESH. And the premise is you learn the best by teaching. So you have to take a course taught by another student, but you have to teach an AP course to a class of peers. And that made me realize, wow, when you teach, you actually learn better than anyone else. And I was fascinated by that new way of learning. So when I got to senior year, I applied early to Harvard and I got my interview. You can't make this up, but my interviewer was a high school teacher. So instead of a 30-minute conversation, we sat for an hour and a half talking about modes of education, how people learn. And this was like in the mid-90s. No one was talking about alternative forms of education. And this was also before cell phones. So my dad's in the parking lot panicking that it was supposed to be a 30-minute interview and I'm (laughs) gone for an hour and a half. But I still remember that interview so well. And it's because we bonded over alternate forms of education. She saw something in me that would democratize how we teach people, how we give people access, because to even have that interview was so lucky for me. What could we do if whatever we achieved, we shared and we came from a place of abundance? And thanks to her, I mean, I wish we had social media. I can't track down who that interviewer was. She changed the course of my life, but it was a whole lot of luck. You graduated from Harvard in 2000 or when was it? 2000, yes right at the crazy dot com boom. I was 94. So I'm six years you know, ahead of you. What was it like for you when you arrived there and you had had such a different background? Although I would say that everyone there has such a different background that it kind of makes there's everyone there stands out, right? No one fits in. But how was that for you when you first arrived and you suddenly are thrust in this, you know, rooming group? What was that like? It was so different. I think everyone ends up with this syndrome where you're a big fish in a little pond no matter how good your high school was, and then you get to college, and it doesn't even matter which college, everyone realizes, wow, I'm a small fish in a really big pond. And you know this at Harvard, if anything, I mean, that's the biggest shock. We all know there's people smarter than us, but when you're sitting in a room and you're looking at that curve, it really hits home. And I still went in head first because, remember, you know, I was doing programs at MIT, I skipped 
pre-calculus and went straight to calculus. I'm like, I got this. I'm going to be a neurosurgeon because I was still on that Asian tiger parent path. It's like, I got this. I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. I'm going to skip all the basic classes, take upper level, you know, uh, genetics and take only math and science classes. And I got my butt kicked. So that was a humbling experience to realize that it can't be just will. There has to be a plan, right? Like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? So that was a good humbling modulation of how I can cadence my path and my learning, right? Because will can only take you so far. We physically just can't take that many classes. There's not even that many hours in a day. So that was a good learning. And I actually ended up switching from biochem to econ because I thought I wanted to do biotech. And then when the dot-com burst really happened in 2000, I leaned into just simply doing technology, But the academics is one piece. The social piece was a whole other component of it. And you know this. I mean, there's in any college so many different social groups. And what I realized is for the first time, I think MIT was the start for those enrichment programs. But Harvard was really the eye opener that it's okay to be smart and want to learn and be curious because it wasn't so cool in my high school to do that. You know, those were the geeks in the corner. They were the ones who studied and the rest of the people partied. Like I never went to homecoming. I never went to a single football game. My parents were really overprotective. So I get to college and all of a sudden the floodgates open, right? I can go to (laughs) football games. I can go to parties. I can join 60 clubs, which I think I might've done. So that was amazing. I mean, it was like eating at a buffet, but I honestly ended up having trouble finding my place because when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I managed the men's hockey team. I did drama. I started our first internet magazine, right? Really cool, but I'm all over the place. So to this day, I think that complexity in me, like the fact that I worked in fashion, but I summit mountains and I can love being creative, but also being a techie, that's still me. But when you're in college finding your identity, you don't have a core group. Like my blocking group is diverse. We were the first year that was randomized. So to this day, I still love going back to college reunions, but it's not like I have a core group to go back to because I wasn't the athlete or the thespian or the pre-med. I was a little bit of all of them. So I wouldn't trade that, but yeah. For, I don't know if you went back to reunions. I always, I go back to every reunion, but I was was an athlete. So I had the benefit of being in a crowd Was that the right crowd for me? I don't know, but that's just the crowd I was kind of thrust into. Do you still go back and hang out with those athletes or is your group more diverse? Oh, I am so close with all of my college friends. I mean, we are all very, very tight. And I would say most of them are athletes, although a lot of my girlfriends are not. But my girlfriends, I'm super lucky. There's like 10 of us that go on a trip every year for a weekend. So, And only a couple of them are athletes. Most of them are not. But a lot of the guys I was friends with were athletes. But yeah, I, I would say that my college friends are, are among my closest friends even today. Even if we don't talk a lot, there's that that thing in common. But I hadn't thought of what you were saying, which is that if you're involved in a lot of things, like it's like master of like, who's your team? Who's your pocket? So are you still close with your college friends with any of them? I am, but they're all over the place. There's not one group. And I envy you a little bit with your with your athletic background because there's an inherent structure that keeps you close. I was part of a sorority, which was off campus, and that group I'm still close with, but they're all individual pockets of people. Right. In some ways, I'm envious what you have because you go back to reunion, you've got your blocking or rooming group, and you roll as a tribe. So my experience in business school was very similar to your experience in college, where there was a big click and I wasn't part of it. I had this friend and this friend. And throughout my life, I've been the person who has like pockets of 
close friends in different places and not a clicky person. So I relate a lot to what you're saying because there is a comfort in being part of a click. And when I go back to my business school reunions, I'm very aware of the fact that there's a click that I'm not a part of, so it isn't as comfortable. But do you think that changes over time? The only reason I ask is college reunions at the five and 10 year mark were, like five year was, oh, I get to see old friends. 10 year, you're kind of looking and comparing against each other and where your careers are, because we're all overachievers, let's face it. 15 is a little bit more of the same where you bring kids into the picture and you're kind of doing that. But what I loved about the 20 year, which I just had, is we all realized we have no idea what we're doing. We're no longer in those clicks and silos. We're all going through midlife crises. Is this the right career? Did I marry the right person? (laughs) And we all came back to the table and we're like, we are so lost. And that was, it felt like freshman year all over again, right? We shed all the hubris and the constructs of our careers. Like I'm leaving corporate. This person realized they hate medicine. And we're like, God, we're lost. And it became right back where we were in freshman year before the clicks had formed and we returned back to being like 18-year-old lost souls and it was beautiful. And now for a quick break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. 
All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Okay, so take us back. So you graduated from college and your parents thought you were going to be a neurosurgeon and then you end up at Trilogy in a tech company. (laughs) How did they react to that? You know, at that time, I'd already braced them for change because I spent a year in college, took all these upper level biochem classes and hated it. So I said, I don't know what I want to major in because in their second year, you have to choose. I'm going to go abroad for a year. And they're like, what? Now, remember, I had not been an airplane on an airplane since I was six years old when we came from Hong Kong to Boston. That was the only time I'd ever been on an airplane. We had a humble background. So we we did road trips to, you know, the Cape or New Hampshire for summer vacations, but we couldn't afford to take our family on an airplane anywhere. So they said, wait, you're going to leave college for a year and go to London? And I said, "Until <laughs> unless you tie me down. I'm going. Because what first year helped me realize is so many people came from all over the world and so many different walks of life. And I'd seen such a narrow slice. And I knew I wouldn't be able to get the most out of college unless I took a chance and just expanded those horizons, see a different country, see a different culture and make decisions for myself. So sophomore year, I left, went abroad for a year. My parents freaked out. They called me every week. I think they called me every day until I stopped picking up the phone because we didn't have cell phones then. So they'd call the place I lived and I just wouldn't pick up the phone. And I trained them to realize there's different paths. And I'd call them once in a while. And every time I called them, I give a little bit more about the life I'm building, the maturity I was advancing into and, and learning to make my own decisions. By the time I got back, they were just so grateful that I was in one piece that by the time I finished college and I said, I'm going to do tech, they gave me space. Well, but it's super rare to go away your sophomore year to another country. How did that happen? Well, I finished the first year realizing I took all these biochem, science, and math classes, and none of them were going to count for my major. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. So you remember we had proctors and advisors, and I had a really good conversation with some upperclassmen and also the person who was in charge of our, our house. And they said, have you ever been away from your family, away from friends? And I said, no. Like, do you know how to make decisions for yourself yet? And I was like, I have no idea. I was told this path is the one I was supposed to serve, but I'm miserable. And they said, they didn't say go away for a year. They said, you might want to spend some time thinking about that. So that summer, I took some courses at the summer school just in different areas. I'm like, let me try this. Let me try that. And I realized there's so much more in the world out there. So I will say this. Harvard doesn't sponsor work abroad or study abroad courses or programs that well. But I knew I needed to do something different. I knew I could get a work visa in London. I knew I spoke the language. So with a little bit of help from the career office, I was able to set those up and I just picked up and went. I didn't even have a job when I showed up. I landed in the ground in London and started looking for a job. But that's arguably the shock I needed. It wasn't a pre-described path of climbing an academic or a corporate ladder. I showed up and said, oh my God, let me go get the Help Wanted ads and see where I can find a job. And that is so brave of you that it's really very unusual, especially given your sheltered background. It's really incredible. Well, I think I realized it was so sheltered and I wasn't living the full life that I could because I'd get to college and people had spent summers in France and gotten to travel to Africa. And I was like, I literally have not even been on an airplane since I immigrated to the U.S. 
So, you know, in some ways, while I've been corporate for a long time, I think my spirit is quite adventurous. So that fed it. And let's just say, you know, that was probably an overcorrection to run away to another country for a year without a job. But I came back and ended up just like crushing the rest of college and really finding my voice, finding my activities, my friend groups, and having confidence that I am a complex and kind of random individual, but I can have lots of different groups and interests and that's okay. Well, that's one of the things when I was researching your background and really trying to understand your path, it's not linear, right? You have a, a very strong corporate background, but you also clearly have a strong entrepreneurial bent. So when you look at, if you had to look at a pendulum and one side is entrepreneurship and one side is corporate, where do you feel like you're naturally set? There's a difference between inherent nature and the skills you build. I don't think I'm a true entrepreneur. I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs and they're born differently. It is a different breed. So my risk tolerance, whether that's inherent or whether that's growing up without a lot of means, my risk tolerance isn't there, but the way I push boundaries are. So let's say in that spectrum, maybe I'm 50-50, but the construct of how I think is probably 70-30 entrepreneurship to corporate. The skills I built to have the confidence and security that I psychologically needed was probably the other direction, 70-30. So somehow it mixes in the middle. But what I don't think it is, is that it's, it's not a static 50-50. It's almost like a seesaw, right? Some days I'm more entrepreneurial, some days I'm more corporate. And corporate can be good. I tell entrepreneurs there's a reason certain strategies and structures work. And if you're running a $35 billion company, you have to have hierarchy and HR practices and process. Otherwise, you have Enron, right? So there's a balance between the two, but it's a sliding scale day to day. And some days I have an entrepreneurial hat where I'm trying to figure out what this next phase of my life is like. Other days I'm trying to wrestle this clubhouse topic into a run of show with a producer and a bouncer and structure so that while it might look like it's a casual room on the front end, on the back end, it's very well programmed at and we have every contingency planned for. So it's a sliding scale and I actually love that we can celebrate it because the paths were so different for so long. I think, you know, because of higher education, we've gotten really siloed in the professions we do or the skill sets we have. But go back to the Renaissance. I mean, people, the same people were doctors and lawyers and philosophers and artists all in one. And I think because we're questioning the construct of higher education in addition to the cost of it, it's giving us freedom to say, well, maybe I don't need that graduate degree. Maybe I can be a creator and in corporate and an artist and an athlete all in one. So that duality or multiplexity is actually what I think makes us all richer. And it's becoming more okay to say that and be celebrated for it. Okay, so you were running global digital marketing for Nike and then you decided to leave. That must have been a huge adjustment in terms of a lack of structure for you. I didn't go completely cold turkey. I think my innate personality is to be organized. So whether it's in corporate or as an entrepreneur, my calendar is always filled out and it has all the details and every person who's supposed to be invited. So because, you know, my friends joke that sometimes I feel a little German because I'm so precise with the calendar. I just think it's because I'm forgetful because if it's not on my calendar, it won't be there. So I create my own structure for that. It's just what we slot in the calendar now is much more open. So in some ways, it was a tough transition to not have the support and the brand and the resources of corporate, but it opens up so much blue sky thinking. So I would say the transition wasn't about 
the change in structure. That part was easy because I structure myself. It was about what those possibilities were that you fit into the structure. Because when I left Nike, I didn't think I was going to be a creator. I was lucky enough to get on my first public board. Then I was on a second one. Then I was on a private equity board. Then I was advising a VC. I'm like, wow, I can take everything I've learned and help companies and entrepreneurs. Like, what a great way to use that skill set, right? There's the sweat equity, and then there's sounding smart and letting people learn from the benefit of my experiences and my mistakes. I evolved into that, which was still structured, but I realized what I've learned and the things I've gained can help people at scale, right? So that was the nice first transition, and then the creator thing came later. So now it's a balance. I mean, I do sit on public company boards, but I'm also on Clubhouse. There's not a lot of us who do that, but the intersection, I think, is where actually our future is. So tell us about company boards. I think that for people who are not familiar with how you get on one, what you do once you're on one, people don't realize that it's a paid position. Share the the process of getting on one and what it's been like for you. It is the best kept secret. I had no idea what public boards were. And I was familiar with board positions. I've done it for nonprofits and for industry organizations. But for publicly traded companies, board seats are paid positions and it's governance. You represent shareholders. The way I describe it to people is, think about Apple and how many shares of stock are out there. There's thousands, if not tens of thousands of shareholders, but they're technically the owners of the company and the boss of the CEO. CEO can't talk to tens of thousands of people and ask, do you like my strategy? So we elect a, a board of directors to represent the shareholders that govern the company. And so when we hear about boards, we often think of startup ones where we're helping and advising. In a public board, you're the CEO's boss, and you're basically making sure the executive team lives up to the expectations of your shareholders. Completely different role. So when I first heard about it, my friend was consulting for a small pharmaceuticals company that's public and going through a turnaround. The one benefit for me in these board roles is the average age of board members is 63. I'm well shy of that. But rarely do you find people in their 60s and 70s that are experts in digital, and that's the one skill universally that all companies need. So in a weird way, being an expert in digital has helped me get my foot in the door because that small pharma company that just lost insurance reimbursement for their key product because there's so many copycats, they needed somebody who was going to help them pivot the business to D to C, and no one in pharma that's 65 years old was going to be able to do that. So that's how I got my foot in the door. They needed digital. I knew how to do it, and we've been taking this company on a turnaround for the past year, and it's working. Then it opened up another door because once you get on your first public board, you get on your second one, etc. But they're paid positions. It's a completely different set of work, right? I simply govern. I do not lean in and operate. I barely even advise too much because we represent shareholders, but we do shepherd the company and the future and shareholder value. But once you get on one, you get on another. So my advice for people who are looking to get on boards is first start getting experience. If I hadn't been on nonprofit and industry boards, I wouldn't have been considered. It also helped that I worked at publicly traded companies and doing strategy or digital, I often had to prep the materials or even present to the board about our strategies. So I'd been on the other side of the table, right? And those things certainly help. So I tell people, anytime you wanna think about a board position, you have to start with baby steps, show you know what being on a board looks like. Then start having small wins against it, but The piece that I think is really important is understanding the gaps in what boards need now. And it's, candidly, women and people of color, 
right? In California, every public board has to now have a female. Goldman Sachs won't take a company public without a female on its board. So for our audience, this is the perfect time for us to stand up and raise our hands. Build experience. It doesn't matter if it's a nonprofit or a startup. Just start learning what it's like to be a board member versus an operator. The third piece is raise your hand because all of this is done through networks. There's no job postings. There's a handful of sites that people can go to, but all of mine were through referrals. So just by saying, I'm interested in this, if you know of one, please let me know. That is half the battle. That's awesome. It's really inspiring hearing you. I think that um, especially you just gave us like a, a masterclass in in board and in, in, in boards and how they work. And I think that for a lot of people, it just seems so opaque, even if you're in business, right? Even if you have the MBA, it's still this opaque process that people don't fully understand. Let's go back to your personal life for a moment. Who, like, for example, when Gary approaches you and says, okay, I want to sign you, who is your personal board of directors? Who do you go to for advice? I consider some of my best friends my friend tours. Those are the best relationships. And they don't even have to be in business. They just have a really balanced view of not only life, but me, right? Those are the people that I can trust when I'm out of line. They're going to say like, Swan, you know, maybe you should be getting more sleep. Like, I know this is an amazing time for you, but are you really taking care of your health? Or, hey, is that the path you really want to take? Right. So in some ways, we all have professional mentors that we look up to. Gary's one of them. Right. I have a few more out there that, you know, there's a woman named Carol Cruz, for example, that um, I call her a friend tour. But we even though she's about a decade more senior than me in our career journey, we both joined our first public board at the same time. So what an ally you have. Right. I have someone, a group called Executive Women in Business or sorry, Executive Women on Boards. And it's women on boards, especially ones early in their journey. So in that group, this woman, Lisa Shallot, runs an incredible platform for us to connect with each other, brings programming. But within that, she created a little teamlet of us that are early for boards that are learning together. So I lean on those guys. So there's the structural ones. My old boss, Julie Wong, who's another Asian tiger parrot, but she's my old boss from Elizabeth Arden. She's a mentor. So I have those. But when I come to making life decisions or career choices, my friend tour group, that's my friends in everyday life that are basically the mirror to me, those are the people I go to. So I wish I actually had a better answer because I tell people all the time how important mentoring is. I do a lot of it. I mentor at scale. I run office hours on Clubhouse where people can come and ask me questions. But the odd thing is the ones that are the overachievers are generally really bad at asking for mentorship because we're so busy moving. We're so busy helping people. I don't necessarily have a you know, a tribe to go to for that, but they're in pieces. And I think, you know, for me, it's usually less about the opportunity and thinking about pros and cons. It's about where it fits in my journey in the North Star and the people that are best equipped to give that advice are friends and family. And now for a quick break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. 
LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very of all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. I imagine, given how you grew up, you have a lot of perspective on parenting and how you would raise kids. Do you see kids being part of your future? Possibly. When I was younger, I, I subscribed to societal norms that you're supposed to get married and have kids. And all of a sudden I'm 43 and at the most amazing inflection point of my career. So I'd like to keep the possibility open for children. I know how hard it was for my parents to reestablish themselves in this country and create so much opportunity for me and my brother. And I know I don't wanna do it alone, and I know that it has to be at the right time of life where if I do find a partner who also want kids, we have time for us and then we have time for our family because you're in that for 18 years, if not more. And so I'm open to it, but I'm also okay with the fact that if I don't have children, did I contribute to making this earth a little better? And that's what I hold myself to every day. And if I can answer yes honestly in the mirror at the end of the life well lived, then with or without children, I've done a service to our community and to this greater globe. But I like the idea of it sometimes, but candidly, the idea of waking up at 4 a.m. for a dirty diaper scares the crap out of me, no pun intended. So <laughs> I froze some eggs, which I don't think women talk about nearly enough, but I did freeze some to keep options open. My mom was unofficially adopted. She was taken in. So for me, I mean, whatever that looks like, whether it's biological children, adopted children, a tribe and you know community of mentees, that, who knows, right? But it's something I'd like to be open to. I just know that it takes time. It takes a partner that sees life the same way you do and wants things at the same time. Uh, so I'm open to it. But, you know, those are not things I'm overly concerned with planning. 
the structure on my calendar, maybe the rest of it, we'll see. Yeah, right. Well, you know, it's interesting hearing you because I think you have such a beautiful perspective on it, which is like you're open. And I think so many people are not open, right? You don't know what that's going to look like. You have no idea if it could happen tomorrow, today, in 10 years. You just don't know. And I think the idea of being open to whatever that looks like means you're going to find whatever it is that's supposed to be part of your life. I hope so. I mean, even going from corporate to being nomadic, I don't keep a place anymore. So you talk about the change in structure. I think I went from one end of the spectrum to the other. So being nomadic and spending different time in different places, depending on where my work takes me or where the communities take me, that amount of openness is what's really different. But that applies as much to the career piece as it does to the personal piece, because you just never know who you're going to meet. Where is your home right now? I'm currently in Miami because I came here to speak at a conference a few weeks ago and just stayed. The incredible (laughs) concentration of people from so many different industries means that it's a great hub for creating connection right now. Maybe I'll go to LA next. I'll go back to Boston and spend some time with my family. But my stuff is literally in storage and I'm literally nomadic because I think a lot of people have moved around since COVID. I was nomadic six months before COVID even started. It's funny because my kids are always like, you don't have that many friends in our town, mom. And I'm like, that's that's true <laughs> because I don't – my friends are all over. I'm, I'm a lot more like you, although I have three kids. I So I I'm certainly have to be in one place a lot more than you do. However, I do think of my closest relationships as the ones that are kind of all over the place because – they're doing similar things to what I'm doing and they're trying to change the world and they're trying to make things happen and they're hustling. Yeah. How'd you find them? I mean, they're all over, right? And it's a little less, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to hop around when you've got three kids. How did you find them and how do you maintain those relationships? Such a great question. I work very hard. At, I collect people. Okay. So I am friends with people I went to preschool you know, with. I'm friends with people I met last week. So for example, next time you come to LA, I will insist on taking you out to dinner. (laughs) I'll be there in like 10 days. Okay, amazing. So we'll we'll have to make a plan. So that's the kind of thing I do that when I meet people that I connect with, whether it's online or on Clubhouse or, or at a conference, I stick with them. And then when I go back to Austin or when I go back to to London or when I go back to Miami, I will make sure to keep in touch, to have a cocktail, to have dinner, to to get in touch with them. So we're going to go now to our speed round um, where I'm just going to ask you quick questions. You can give me quick, spontaneous answers. And then Lou Burns will come on with the male perspective. Lou has been listening to this entire interview and he usually comes in with some huge question at the end. No pressure, Lou, if you're listening. Okay. So speed round. So I know you're nomadic, but what is your morning routine? Coffee, texts and emails, and singing out a song and belting it because music gives me joy and it wakes me up and I dance around and I sing a few lines to a song that's playing in the background and it's the start of my day. Oh, I love it. What was the song today? Exile by Bon Iver and Taylor Swift. Not the most upbeat, but so beautiful and you can just belt out to it. It's great. If you could change one thing about your life today, what would it be? Having more time for exercise and peace. In this past year has been crazy for all of us, but since Clubhouse has really kicked into gear, I mean, I'm working crazy hours seven days a week and it doesn't feel like work, but I wish I had a better handle on sleeping more, on exercise, because I'm trying to burn the candle at both ends. I'm trying to do my advisory gigs. I'm trying to do clubhouse. I'm trying to figure out what the next stage of life is. I'm not resting a lot. 
So if I could change it, I wish I was making a little bit more time to self-care, but this is an iron while it's hot kind of period. So let's burn hard. Let's do that hustle for a few months and then see if we can catch up on sleep after. I love it. And do you ever have any trouble sleeping? Never. That's my best skill in life. No matter where I am, (laughs) no matter how much I've slept, I lay down and I'm asleep in 30 seconds. So that also means when I'm flying to Asia, I get on a plane, I fall asleep before we take off, they wake me up for meals, I land, and I'm like, what time is it? Oh, it's 3 p.m. Cool. I'm good. My best skill in life. Amazing. Okay, you have a lot of famous friends. I don't know how you accumulated all these famous friends, but you did. So is there anyone that leaves you starstruck? I wouldn't call him a friend because we don't know each other. Elon Musk is high on the list because for somebody to dream that big, but then to execute is pretty incredible. Gwyneth Paltrow is another one. I met her randomly at South by Southwest a few years ago, and we see her public persona. When you talk to her, this woman, when she was launching Goop.com, knows the back-end infrastructure of her company, right? So we've all heard the stories about the vaginal eggs and the candles that smell like vag- vaginas and stuff. I mean, it's, it's you know, tabloid-worthy. But when I talked to this woman, I realized you understand the back-end infrastructure of your website and you're looking at analytics tools yourself, arguably not where she should be spending her time, but talk about a person who really, truly runs the business. It's not just the name or the face of the brand, but truly runs the business day to day. All right, Lou, welcome back. Hi, Swan. Hi, Lou. So my question is just, I want to hear about uh, adversity, you know, because I, I grew up in the in the ghetto of Miami, Florida, actually neighborhood called Little Haiti that's been beautified and now it's like a historical landmark and it's no longer a ghetto. Ah, my mom's <laughs> property value went up. Ah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um but my my girlfriend's Korean, you know? So I got a chance to actually see the total opposite spectrum of what it's like to grow up in a, a Asian household, you know? It's totally different from mine. But similar in the same because my mom was an immigrant, you know? But I I love to hear the adversity of of people who are like, quote unquote, perfect to other people, you know? So do you have any stories about that as you're coming in to maybe even being a board member? Adversity is something that either you're born with or you adapt to. The ability to deal with adversity is not always innate. There are some people who have a grit who'll fight through it. There are some people who've been, when placed in a situation, find the grit through fighting through that adversity. I don't think it's nature versus nurture. I think it can be both. And it's situational. What it is for me, and I think it's common with a lot of immigrant kids, is you just get it done, right? Whether it's a child and you're trying to finish homework or whether you're in the corporate ladder and you're trying to figure it out, or even when you're trying to figure out like a fight you're having with your friend, you figure it out, you get to the outcome. Right. So when I think about adversity, for some people, it's a lot more emotional. I'm a problem solver. So I try to remove the emotion, like whatever adversity I'm in, I feel that emotion very heavily because I'm an emotional person for a couple of days. But throughout all that, my mental model is mapping what are the solutions? What can I do? What are the paths? What are the outcomes? And what are the consequences of each? So it just happens naturally with me. I don't think that I consciously do it, but because I'm such a logical person, my heart feels my while my brain's working on that solution. So whether it was trying to figure out, okay, if I want to get to a good school, how do I get there? Well, let me go find out 
what it is that they're looking for and see if I can serve myself up in that way. The whole time I'm feeling imposter syndrome, I'm never gonna make it, I go to this tiny school that's never had anyone get into Harvard. So I'm feeling the weight of that of that stress and that, um, and that expectation of my family. But the other side of my brain is like, okay, what are they looking for and how do I serve myself up to that? They want a well-rounded person? Well, cool, I was in school 12 months out of the year, so I didn't play any sports. I couldn't even ride a bike, but I hear they wanted well-rounded people. So I'm like, let me do theater. What can I do as a sport? I mean, I literally didn't even have gym after sixth grade. So I couldn't play any sports, but I'm like, oh, track and field. You just have to run. I don't have to win, but everyone can run. So let me run. Oh, no one's doing hurdles. Let me participate and at least I'll be first at my school in hurdles because there's only one person running hurdles, right? So while I'm feeling the weight of all this, you just figure it out. So if they want someone well-rounded, let me be well-rounded. Now, this stage in life, I'm more intentional. I'm not trying to meet someone's checklist anymore. But at the time, if you want something that someone has access to, you deliver what you need. And after you get in there, then you figure out what you need to do to change things. And that was the same as getting access to a great college education. That's the same as being on my board, right? You do what you need to get through the door. They need diversity. They need board experience. They need digital. I served all that up. But once you're in, then you can make the change and be more thoughtful about where you want to go. So adversity, I think, can be emotional. It can be logical. I think it's both. But part of being that immigrant kid, I just had to figure it out. And so what I've realized is sometimes for me, mapping those steps, then once I get there, being able to you know, enact the change that I want, that's been actually a better one-two punch for me than to carve my own path because I don't think I had the confidence or, or the, the network to be able to do it from the ground up. Quickly, did your mom put a bowl on your hair when she actually cut your hair? No. Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to send you guys a picture of this. I know we don't have visuals on podcasts, but it wasn't even really a bowl. It was like a helmet-shaped haircut. So it would go like across the forehead and then down around the ears and around the back. So you know how when you have Legos, the hair comes off as a single piece? It looked like a Lego hair. (laughs) So I will send you the photo that shows my Lego hair. I'm also wearing a sweater with farmhouses on it, which I have no idea where my parents got it. And now, of course, I wish I still had it, but it is the most awkward third grade photo. I'm going to send it to you and give you full license to use it as a visual accompaniment (laughs) to this podcast. But it was like a helmet. I'm going to bring it back someday. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, one of the most remarkable things is that Swan apparently gets asked to be interviewed all the time, which is, of course, not a surprise given her new profile. But this is the first podcast she said yes to. That is amazing. She listened to some of our episodes. She saw, you know, our bios and she just decided, I'm going to do this. And she was actually really nervous afterwards because she'd never done one before. That's so cool. (laughs) I love it. I think that we forget that when you're in corporate America, like you and I as entrepreneurs were asked to do podcasts all the time, right? To be interviewed. And when you're in corporate America, you forget that you have to ask corporate communications department if it's okay. And, and so, so often someone who's, you know, a VP in corporate America just says no to everything having to do with press. So it makes sense that this is an entirely new world to her. That is awesome. How exciting. So Amy, I'm just dying to know, what did you think of our conversation? So one thing that's really interesting to me about your conversation with Swan, Sam, is her story about Clubhouse. You know, Swan's career is so interesting, right? And a lot of it seems quite 
planned in some ways, right? That she's kind of, you know, built digital at these amazing companies. But the clubhouse thing is super interesting. And I have to admit, I am slightly jealous because I am the person who, you know, early this summer when people started joining Clubhouse and you joined and invited me and I was like, Sam, I am drowning in my startup and how could I possibly find time for this? And you kept telling me to find time and I didn't. And like, if you look at what it's done for Swan, I mean, it's transformed her career. Sometimes the most unexpected things can do that. It's true. And I also think she was well positioned in her life to do that, right? Because she was at a point in her life where she was on a few public boards She'd moved back to Boston to spend time with her parents. She she was in a position to take advantage of Clubhouse. And she's always been kind of comfortable being a bit nomadic, as she describes it. So this kind of new life where she's, you know, going away from corporate America. And now Gary Vee is managing her. And she's going to be traveling, you know, the world, presumably, and doing all of this, like, you know, being an MC and kind of going where it takes her. It almost goes back to an earlier life that she really feels comfortable with. Yeah, it's super interesting. What else were your were your takeaways? Well, I just really appreciated her candor about kids and family. And I think that so often we don't hear that part of the story. So I bet that, you know, a lot of people who think they know Swan's story or or see her career might not hear that personal side of it. And I mean, that's, by the way, that's one of the luxuries of this show is that we really get a chance to talk to people not just about their careers, which obviously a lot of podcasts do, but we really have enough time to get to the heart of their untold stories. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast.
Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.